Hello, this is the Talking Michigan Transportation Podcast. I'm Jeff Cranson, Director of Communications at the Michigan Department of Transportation. This week, the conversation focuses on I-375 in Detroit and some ambitious plans to rethink that freeway corridor. First, I'll be talking with Margaret Berendes, manages the environmental section at MDOT and has a well-informed perspective on the process for replacing a freeway with an at-grade boulevard. And in the wake of last weekend's heavy rains and flooding in Detroit, she also talks about why freeways were built below grade and the challenges that presents with increasingly volatile weather caused by climate change. Later, I'll speak with Michigan Lieutenant Governor Garland Kilchrist, who spent some of his childhood in the Black Bottom neighborhood, which was greatly disrupted years earlier when I-75 was built. But first, I, I want to hear from Margaret because she she has the the technical knowledge and you know the background on this kind of thing. So, Margaret, tell me, I guess, um, in you know highest level terms, you know what this means to you being able to uh, you know rethink what is the 375 corridor. So, to me, it's a really exciting opportunity from an environmental impact standpoint to consider past and present contexts and think about the future. And, you know, National Environmental Policy Act is a great process that um, helps us put all those pieces together and come up with a plan for a transportation facility. And this is the first time in, in my 30 years here at MDOT that um, we have been able to look at decommissioning a freeway facility in an urban area. So this presented challenges and opportunities um, to really look at the past, the present, and the future and um, come up with a design um, that met the needs of transportation, but also the community. And that is really the essence of the National Environmental Policy Act is balance between transportation needs and community needs and the environmental goals that we have for the natural resources in the area because water, for example, as we just heard with some of the flooding in the Detroit area yesterday and management of water is a is a very current topic. And I-375 is going to have to manage water in its future um, iteration with the new project that will go in there, too. And we hope to use some best practices in managing that water for the future. So it's about community and natural resources and balancing those with transportation. And that is truly one of the most exciting things about the project, that um, it is, um, I think, looking at some very successful balancing of those needs. Well, and it dovetails nicely uh, because, you know, MDOT has been talking about and, and working on this to one degree or another for, you know, more than seven years now. And you've got an administration with President Biden and, and USDOT Secretary Pete Buttigieg who are very interested in looking at these kinds of things and, you know, rethinking them, maybe thinking about connectivity that was that you know was severed uh years ago when these freeways were put in and 375 is almost like a case study in that but since you mentioned uh the water and the drainage which is very much in the news obviously after the weekend talk a little bit about that because of your background 
the National Environmental Policy Act, um, something you and I touched on around Earth Day on the podcast. What was the reasoning uh, behind building recessed freeways in the first place? So historically, recessed freeways were looked upon actually as a more urban friendly type of freeway design, because if you could use retaining walls for your freeway design um, and pump stations, which would pump water out of a depressed freeway, then you would have less of an impact on the community. So, um, for example, if you look at some of the more suburban and rural freeway designs, they use ditches to manage water. And, you know, this facility uses underground pipes and pump stations to manage water. And, you know, when we see the flooding, what happens is the pump stations can't keep up with the amount of water that's coming in. And they're collectors for water, these depressed freeways. But historically, and that's why you see so many of them in Detroit, when you built a depressed freeway, you could save costs and impacts because you would have to purchase less property for those types of facilities. The other benefit that a lot of early planners saw with a depressed cross-section was that you could kind of keep the city street system somewhat intact when you were building those. You would build the overpass bridges that would connect to the local street grid. And um, the idea was that less of the traffic impacts, the sounds, the emissions, all the unpleasant things that come with lots of traffic were down below and sort of out of the view of the neighborhood too. So in a way, those were early on um, you know, trying to save money, but also they were looked upon as benefit. Well, I think what we found out, we found out with the, you know, frequency of these weather events, which we knew were going to increase in frequency because of what's going on with the climate. And you're going to have these, these deluges where more rain comes in a shorter amount of time that, yeah, that there, it might not matter how many pumps you have and, and how big they are. There's only so much you can do to move water, and if the creeks and rivers that are the outlets for the water are swollen themselves, there's no place for the water to go. Do you have any sense of how big an issue this is in, in other parts of the country with recessed freeways? I mean, this can't be unique to Detroit, can it? So there is something unique about Detroit um, and our freeway system. Detroit is actually geographically part of the old Lake Plain for the extensive you know, water system that we've got here, the Detroit River, Lake Erie, um, Lake St. Clair. So um, topographically, um, Detroit was a low, flat, you know, swampy part of the state. And you, know, you can't take that away very easily when you build a city at that location. So you know, a lot of flooding depends on your geography and your location. So I think there are probably other cities that have those experiences, but I'm not as familiar with um, those situations. So I couldn't really say which city, but um, I would say Detroit has some pretty unique challenges when it comes to water. Well, as, as you said, I, I think restoring this to an at-grade boulevard will present some other um, drainage challenges, but I think those will be easier to deal with than when you're basically uh, turning these recessed freeways into rivers and these heavy rainstorms. Um, talk about some of the other advantages of, you know, going back to a to an urban boulevard and an at-grade street and, and the opportunities that it creates. 
So some of the biggest advantages in going to an at-grade boulevard are really related to how a city functions with respect to mobility and all different types of mobility, including pedestrians, bicyclists. Those are um, also transit users as well. Because really, when you look at a depressed freeway section, there's not a lot of flexibility in what you can do for other types of modes of transportation because it is set aside just for vehicular traffic. So when you go to an at-grade facility, you have so many more choices with where people can walk, ride bikes, use transit because you have that mainline facility itself is now open to um, all those different modes and you have maybe more choices with respect to cross streets and what you can do with those because we have to remember bridges are very expensive. So, you know, when you're building a freeway through a city, you, you think carefully about how many bridges you're gonna put and where you're gonna put those bridges. But at an at-grade situation, you have a lot more flexibility because everything's on the same level. And so you have reduced costs with respect to looking at how you get people across that road. So that's where your flexibility is. And that is an exciting part of this project too, because it is heavily based upon uh, pedestrian flow, bicycle flow. In fact, one of the components of it is to put in a cycle track, which is basically a dedicated space for bicyclists. And a protected um, space. Correct. Mm -hmm. Protected, dedicated space. It's a very safe space for cyclists. So, um, you know, again, having that extra room because the at-grade boulevard takes up less space than a freeway. So um, this is one of the few projects I've ever worked on where we actually have extra space that is coming out of the project, which is also very exciting because you can look at other uses for that extra space. Well, and on top so, of those extra uses, it sounds like, you know, we, you, <laughs> project managers are talking with Federal Highway about possibly using some of that, that land for something that honors the history of, of that area and that neighborhood. So this project has over 30 acres of excess property. And uh, in my career, I've never seen that happen. Usually we're buying property. We're not. Um, you know, getting rid of property, so to speak, here that we don't need for transportation anymore. And so um, this is very unique for us. And that's quite a bit of space, excess property in an urban environment. Yeah. So you're right. You have opportunities for multiple types of purposes. And during public involvement here, people said that they want the story of I-375 and the Black Bottom and Paradise neighborhoods to be told and that everyone should know what happened with the construction of the freeway and how it affected those neighborhoods. And so we have opportunities to tell that story as well. And when I say we, I mean the community because it's the community story and we're here to facilitate the community telling their own story about what has happened there. Yeah, and we'll hear a little bit of that later from the lieutenant governor who was obviously not born yet when the freeway was built, but because he spent some of his early childhood in that area, he has uh, a real sense of it and a sense of the history. But what do you think, you know, when you hear these stories 
and yet you work, you know, for Department of Transportation, uh, where people, not you certainly, but people made these decisions uh, 60, 70 years ago, maybe even more so in terms of the planning that went into these things. Um, what they were thinking at the time, I mean, is it as simple as they just wanted to get people from point A to point B and anything that was in their way, you know, was disregarded? I mean, is it is it that simple? I think it's actually pretty complex. Um, I do believe that the interstate system itself was um, a force to be reckoned with all over the country in cities everywhere. And in the United States, um, we made choices with our cities and the interstate system that were often devastating to parts of those cities. And to me, that has to do with a larger societal perspective on what a city is and how a city should function. And that, um, you know, the beliefs at the time were in order to keep my city viable, I have to have a freeway in the middle of the city. And especially in Detroit, where, you know, they were showcasing the automobile. So we're going to have the most advanced freeway system in the world here in Wayne County because we're going to showcase um, what can happen with these these using this technology. And so, um, you know, Detroit has, again, a, a very, I think, interesting, unique tie with respect to the automobile industry. Now, what people didn't know were some of the unintended consequences of building these major infrastructure projects through cities. And you see, um, you know, probably a lack of an awareness there about what was happening. And, and in some cases, you see some people with potentially good intentions of urban renewal. Um, you know, I see old parts of the city that we need to probably eliminate here. And I'm not going to apologize for, you know, what was happening in the past, because I do think there were some ill intents as well. But I, I think of it as a pretty complex situation at the time and reflective of where America was with respect to its its cities. And what our view of development and progress was at the time. Exactly. Well, um, you know, looking forward, um, if if we're able to, you know, we've uh, applied for a, a raise grant, which is a, a new round of grants that the USDOT is offering to do some planning. Um, the hope, obviously, and uh, the governor talked about this in some media interviews last week, is that this kind of paves the way, puts it higher on the radar of the federal government and maybe makes it eligible for more federal money so that we can expedite it. I mean, what's your fondest hope, I guess, for this project? So what I would like to see happen is the project to continue to receive the kind of support it has from our administration and our um, leadership here at MDOT to continue that community discussion and dialogue so that the community can really determine priorities and what they want to see happen next on 375. And, um, you know, we do a lot of that work with NEPA, with the National Environmental Policy Act, but here's a great opportunity to continue that discussion through design, construction, and determining the future for the excess property here. So I would dearly love to see all of the great work that's happened to date in these past seven years 
um, on this project continue on and the momentum continue on so we can arrive at infrastructure solutions that are community friendly um, and do acknowledge some of the things that have happened in the past and look for creative approaches through partnerships with the community and other community nonprofit and public private partnerships to implement some of the things that transportation can do to level the playing field for the community today. I think that's great. Um, thank you, Margaret. I'm sure we'll be talking more about this and I look forward to following the progress with you. And I will be back with Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist. Okay, once again, we're back uh, to talk about I-375 and MDOT's plans to restore uh, an, an urban boulevard there and get rid of the, the freeway that is, uh, you know, acknowledged by many as a major mistake some 60 years ago. And I'm pleased to have with me Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist, who was along for the NBC interview and uh, story on the corridor last week with Mayor Duggan and our director, Paul Adjuba, and the governor. Uh, thanks for taking time to do this. Jeff, thank you for having me. It, it was good uh, to be here with you, and it was good to be there. You know, I uh, I grew up uh, the first half of my childhood in the Black Bottom neighborhood where 375 um, was built and that it really uh, bisected and, and, and destroyed. And so this is really great that our state is making this statement of values um, that we want to uh, invest in this community in a new way and to restore what's been lost. Well, that's really interesting. So what are your earliest perceptions? I mean, given that you're, you know, much younger than the freeway, <laughs> uh, your earliest perceptions of that freeway and when did the history of that neighborhood really get on your radar? You know, when I was a child, I mean, like super young, it was, it, I was made aware of my parents, my neighbors, uh, they told me about, you know, what happened when 375 uh, came there, that it didn't have to go there, but that when it was placed there, what it displaced 60 years ago, displacing, you know, hundreds of Black-owned businesses, displacing, um, you know, what really was to, it was our Black Wall Street. You know, we talk about what happened in Tulsa and Black Wall Street there, that Black Bottom was our Black Wall Street here in Detroit and here in Michigan. So from a very, very, very young age, I'm talking four or five years old, I was aware of that history. And so now it's, I'm, I'm very proud that as Lieutenant Governor of the state, as someone who is a son of that community, to be able to, to make this statement of values to the federal government in a way that's aligned with our president and vice president, you know, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, uh, who want to invest in communities and create not just equitable access to opportunity, but frankly, to create equitable access to prosperity in a way that plays homage to um, uh, the community that was lost. That's really interesting that uh, that you, you talk about as, as a black Wall Street because it really was the epicenter of the black middle class in Detroit and, and probably therefore in Michigan. I mean, and Al, you should go a step further than that. So, you know, for a lot of black people around the country, actually, you know, Detroit, Michigan was the place that they came. And for the first time, they saw black folks uh, who had uh, wealth. Um, and so a lot of those black folks lived in that community. And so it really represents a lot. And, you know, this is about, you know, what the governor is trying to do across the board, which is create equitable access to economic opportunity, to position the people of Michigan to have a chance of success, whether that is reclaiming a heritage and building a prosperous future on top of that, or just, or just reducing barriers uh, for people to be their best selves. That's what we're all about. 
So Jupiter kind of aligned with Mars for us because while this has been talked about for a few years, it's been a bit stalled. The funding is always a problem. You know, we're talking in the range of $300 million to do this right. But having a president come along and a, a secretary of transportation and, and Pete Buttigieg and say, this is exactly what we're talking about when we talk about equity and we talk about connectivity. And I mean, it, it just really couldn't have come at a better time. Well, that's what I mean when I say an alignment of values with Vice President Biden, I mean, excuse me, President Biden and Vice President Harris, Secretary Buttigieg, you know, they've made clear that the way that we should be directing federal resources is to create, you know, sort of catalytic opportunities to create equity in our communities. And that's exactly what 375 represents. And us applying for this USDOT raise grant, you know, we don't get a chance to make many of these kind of applications. We only get to apply for like three every year. And our administration, the Whitmer Gilchrist administration, is choosing to ask the federal government to partner with us on this project because it's the right thing to do and because we believe in the economic potential and vitality of this community and we want to build it back better. So definitely our hope in pursuing this raise grant is that we can get some money for the planning, but it's going to signal viability to the federal government and they're going to say, okay, this is something we've already invested in. So let's invest more and really make this happen and expedite it and get it over the finish line. Um, Many people can't get past lamenting the troubling history, which is understandable. Uh, but at the same time, you know, nothing the city or state could do would undo those past mistakes. So you and the governor and the department are acknowledging that past and, and doing what you can, I guess, to explore the, the ways to restore the opportunity and vibrancy there. But what do you think when you hear people say, well, nothing's going to bring it back? I mean, I mean, that's true, right? Nothing is going to bring it back the way it was, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't do something. Intention is not resurrection. The intention is respect and then reimagination. So the idea of we you know, can we invest in the potential of the people of this community so that it doesn't need to be exactly what it was, because that was 60 years ago. But what is the version of that vibrant community today? We don't I'm not just here to mark something historically. We're here to build something for the future that's inclusive and that is representative of that heritage. And that's what we can do. And that's what you know this kind of grant. Well, as you said, demonstrate the viability of this project and we will have a very, I know, um, uh, vibrant and enthusiastic set of community conversations about what this can look like um, and what this community can be. And that's what's exciting to me. Well said, and the, the federal government, the Federal Highway Administration signals some flexibility and cooperation in terms of doing a memorial there or some kind of museum, something to, to honor the past. I know that's really important to people. And that's that's unusual for you know a DOT to be able to do something like that. So I think this could be a real model for the rest of the country. Well, I mean, again, that 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 would be nice, and I think they have uh, said there's some interest in that, and that should happen. That just can't be the extent of it. And so I think what our residents will be looking for is how we leverage this opportunity. This is going to be a generational investment uh, in, in this community, and it's how we can make sure that we are enabling all the people with ideas who live in that community, all those with heritage here, to be able to see themselves in the future of this community, not just to relish the past. Do you have any specific thoughts on what you might want to see there? You know, I think that um, I think that it's really up for the people who are there not to decide. So, you know, I, I just want to make sure that the process that we go through is one that ends up, that like lands in a place where we get something that is truly enabling, like whether that's enabling again, that we have so many people who are so entrepreneurial, Black Bottom again was a business haven. How can we, how can we have another 
you know, district of, of black owned, black entrepreneurs and diverse entrepreneurs who are putting their ideas into the world in that part of Detroit. That would be really exciting and really inspiring. And I know that coupling and reconnecting that neighborhood with downtown Detroit, there's some really exciting opportunities that can come from that um, when that boulevard is done right. So I'm, I'm just eager to see what the people come up with. So you think that sounds different, not contradicting necessarily, but different from rebuilding Michigan and the aggressive bonding plan to rebuild the freeways and bridges that are falling apart to take a freeway out and, and restore it as an urban boulevard. But actually, that's also fixing something. It's fixing another problem, right? Well, the way that I see it, it's all connected because what rebuilding Michigan represents is how do we make sure this infrastructure is enabling for people to be able to do what they need to do from a commerce perspective, from a connection and relationship perspective. And so that all is under this same category here. So whether it is filling in a freeway or fixing a bridge, um, all of it is about preparing Michigan's infrastructure to go into the future in a better way. Well, thank you, Lieutenant Governor. I appreciate it. And uh, I think we'll have more opportunities to talk about this as time goes on. So thank you for taking the time. Thanks, Jeff. And thank you to all the entire MDOT team, our MDOT employees that I see every day are courageous, are intelligent, are productive, and I'm proud to work alongside them. Thank you again for listening to this week's edition of the Talking Michigan Transportation Podcast. I would like to thank Randy Doubler and Corey Petey for engineering this week's podcast. To subscribe to show notes and more, go to Apple Podcasts and search for Talking Michigan Transportation. Mm-hmm.